Chapter 12 of A Broken Bond. This is a LibriFox recording. All LibriFox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriFox.org. A Broken Bond by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 12. The Deadly Tube. While unconsciously playing into Philanthropy's hands, Floyd had opened the way for a diabolical crime. The head of St. Swithin's had adroitly pulled the wool over James Stone's eyes and kept the half-crazed miner from knowing just what to expect. But nevertheless, the specialist's mind had been made up from the beginning. He'd planned it all out after receiving the letter. As for his recognition of the miner, which had so startled his visitor, it had been a very simple matter and quite within the capacity of one much less shrewd than Stephen Philansby. Floyd had announced that Stone and Crawford had taken passage on the Cortez. Philansby had taken pains to learn when the vessel had lo- the caller's name had, to the doctor, been as good as written over his face. That Stone was undoubtedly a victim of some mental derangement not matter to Valansby's in the least. Almost any other physician would have been affected by the man's plight and would have thought of nothing but the best way to cure him. Not so Philansby, however. His apology for a heart had been hard in the beginning, and it had grown steadily harder as a result of his ostensibly scientific but really devilish, experiments on unfortunate sufferers. Had there been a spark of honor in him, he would have done all in his power to keep the irresponsible stone from crime and, if possible, to banish his ailment. But instead he determined to use a demented man for his own ends to help him to murder, and finally to strip him off his fortune. His conscience had not given him a single twinge for the very good reason that he had none. In fact, The prospective divisions of wealth seemed to him eminently right and proper. He might be taking away Stone's fortune, but it would be giving him Crawford's in place of it. In other words, he reasoned that Stone would be getting the job done for practically nothing, and the 450,000, while generous pay, was not a cent too much according to Philanthropy's view of it. He knew as well as anyone could have known that, though he might try to shift the responsibility as much as he pleased, it lay with him, after all, and he wanted pay for it. Moreover, he coveted wealth, more wealth than he had been able to amass through the many handsome fees that were pouring in all the time from the rich and great who were numbered among his patients. He wished to build a hospital of his own, of which he should be even more the master than was possible at St. Swithin's. He longed for expensive laboratories built and equipped along new lines, not for the good of humanity, but to further his own peculiar ambitions. Stone's money, with what he had already possessed, would go far toward realizing these ambitions, and he was willing to take almost any risk to further his consciousless aims. The hours passed away swiftly, and at about seven o'clock in the evening, Philansby returned from a round of the wards, entered his private office, and went to the telephone. He rang up the Hotel Windermere and asked for Stone. The clerk informed him that Mr. Stone was not in the hotel at the time, but might return at any moment. If you care to leave a message, it will be delivered to him as soon as he arrives, the man went. Very well, Philanthropy returned after a pause. Tell him that the gentleman who he visited on Amsterdam Avenue this morning will be at the hotel about half past seven and will wait for him in the lobby. The clerk took down the message and repeated it, after which Philanthropy replaced the receiver and prepared to leave the hospital. By means of an intercommunicating phone, he called up St. Swithin's garage and had his car, which he kept there, brought round to the entrance. As he crossed the pavement to enter it, he lifted one long, lean hand and pressed a smooth, round object in his breast pocket. Little did the passers-by dream that, concealed in the clothing of that sinister, shabbily dressed, 
but nevertheless distinguished figure was a tube containing deadly bacilli in a quantity sufficient to spread death for miles around, even, if unchecked, to sweep throughout the entire country. Thus, like the shadow of death itself, the vulture-like form of Stephen Philansby slipped into the big limousine and was winged away to the Hotel Windermere. End of chapter 12